Why did I choose Antony and Cleopatra? Sorry. Why did I choose Antony and Cleopatra along with King Lear? Partly because I love the play and also very largely because Shakespeare, to my knowledge, which is limited, but I haven't found anything apart from the fact that Antony and Cleopatra was entered in the Stationer's Register in 1608, when he wrote it, we're not sure of, but certainly after King Lear. Perhaps he'd written something else before he wrote Antony and Cleopatra. But anyway, 1608, early 1608 spring was when he actually, it was registered. And to be registered didn't mean it would be performed. And I've always had a question in my head. Maybe there's a simple answer, which I'm just too ignorant to have located. Why was Antony Cleopatra never performed? King Leo had been perform performed before King James I in December 1606. Why was there no... I haven't found any wonderful book. Um, I'm pretty sure I've read Jonathan Bates' Soul of an Age more than once and gone carefully through it too because I think it's an immense piece of work. But I can't find in his book any reference to Antony and Cleopatra having been performed, not a recorded, documented, researched evidence. And yet it does appear in 1623, in print. Why was it never performed? And another question in my head, and I'm not saying I've found the answer, but a question in my head has been, so Ben Jonson, when he died, a few years after Shakespeare, was buried in Westminster Abbey. Edmund Spencer, the great poet, I don't personally like his poetry, but that's <laughs> quite beside the point. He is a great poet. I just don't get him. Um, he was buried in Westminster Abbey. There's a great poet, and a great playwright who actually did spend some time in the tower because of some lines he'd written in the Isle of Dogs, one of his plays. And probably there'd been other things as well. And they were determined to give him a taste of the whip, as it were, by putting him in the tower. That he ended up in Westminster Abbey. Shakespeare ended up in Trinity Church, Stratford-on-Avon which can't have been then considered to be, this is where Shakespeare, our great Shakespeare, that wonderful poem by Penn Johnson, two great Shakespeare, published in the first folio in 1623. Shakespeare died in 1616. And he ends up buried in Trinity Church, Stratford-on-Avon, this great, poet, this great dramatist, is buried in Stratford-on-Avon, and there isn't a word in his will about, 
I want to be buried in Stratford-on-Avon, which would be quite enough an explanation. So that's a question that has puzzled me. I'll leave that there. But then there is the question which Professor Jonathan Bate raises, which has also been in my mind, probably in a lot of people's minds. The question, did some scandal attach to Shakespeare's name over a certain period? That is distinctly... Should we turn this off? Is it going to interfere with the sound for the film recording? Should we turn the laptop off? Is it okay? All right, thank you. And then, of course, he wasn't performed for some hundreds of years. He was referred to, but not performed. And again, my knowledge can be pierced with an arrow from anybody in this room, and please do. I'd be really glad, not just being polite or something. When Shakespeare is next performed, it's been completely rewritten, King Lear, with a happy ending. <laughs> well, that says something, but you think, not performed, not performed. And when Garrick started to create the, as it were, adoration of Shakespeare, which continued and developed, and today we certainly do acknowledge the greatness of Shakespeare, I believe. Garrick didn't have, when he had started off with fireworks exploding at Stratford-on-Avon, a big festival and a parade, and so on and so forth, Garrick didn't perform Shakespeare's play then. He started to perform and he started rewriting Shakespeare as well. And that's a great actor. But Shakespeare still has to be adapted or adopted to some prevailing views or other. It's not my goal to go into that period at all. And yet there is a thing I must say, which is that that superb production, you, you saw the last scene that Cleopatra appears in with Octavius, who has conquered Antony and conquered Cleopatra. Rome has been very specifically divided from Egypt. And in a superbly played and directed production, that is quite overwhelming play. And yet I don't believe that's the play Shakespeare had in mind as he was writing it. I have to be careful how I say this because I don't believe that Shakespeare wrote an eulogy to Elizabeth I in writing Cleopatra in his play but I do believe there's a deep, deep connection with Elizabeth I. Shakespeare did not write in a ju judgmental way. He was careful, but also 
passionate about denouncing an injustice, but he had to handle that in a very careful way. But my Lord is injustice and destitution attacked. In King Lear, what is Shakespeare trying to do in writing Antony and Cleopatra? Well, I don't think, first of all, that it was, in, as far as Cleopatra is concerned, I don't think Shakespeare had a Cleopatra who belonged to some African race, with no disrespect to an African race. I mean, it'd be fantastic played by any of the African peoples, or indeed any people anywhere. It would be wonderful. But what did Shakespeare have in mind? What was stirring him? I think he was stirred by what, in spite of everything, meaning cruelty and injustice, tyranny, poverty, lack of rights, something had passed, was still passing, with the death of Elizabeth. And when I chose to play and then direct Cleopatra, I based her, not entirely, not as a strict copy in any way. I don't think Shakespeare intended a strict copy. But he was inspired by visions of that queen. Because that queen speaks the language that Elizabeth I used. Her laughter, her delight in comedy and laughter, and her savagery and anger as well. But very English. If you're English, I'm not saying she could only be played by an English person, but I do feel that if she's played as if she's nearer to Elizabeth I than to a conception of how the Queen of Egypt must have been in the Pharaoh's period, that we're more able to understand the writing in the whole of the play. Because without doubt, whether we take a Roman point of view or any point of view, there is a mix of glory and cruelty and savagery and meanness in this story. I also think it's a not to be sold as and not to be presented as the great love story that died ended tragically. I don't think that Antony did love Cleopatra until the very end. He was extremely political, and I think that anybody, this is what I think now, I haven't always understood this. You have to think of the Antony of Julius Caesar. He is cruel, He's certainly very, very advanced in military terms. He's very political. 
and the scenes in Julius Caesar where you see Antony, you know this to be true. And on Caesar's dead body, he proclaims a speech in which nobody hears him except the spectator, in which he says there must be war, and that war will be savage, and children and women will be screaming and destroyed in this war which I want in revenge for Caesar's assassination. That is the essence of Antony. And in my view, the reason why Cleopatra is always doubting that Antony loves her is that there's a good reason for her to doubt that Antony loves her. There are plenty of reasons provided if you've got a different pair of spectacles on, as it were, if you're not completely involved in the notion that this is a great love affair in which two people tear each other apart periodically, have jealousy scenes, are prepared to strangle each other or whatever, whatever, and then go off and, using that F word, disappear behind a curtain on the cushions and make wonderful lovemaking. No doubt they did. But that's not what the story is about. And I came to think, very late in the day, I was only half grasping this the last time I played Cleopatra, that noting that Eleonora Duza, who was not the proclaiming kind of actress at all, she was sheer naturalism. Eleonora Duza, and we know that both from accounts about her playing and from what she herself said about her playing, and we know that from the tiny fragment of film that we have of Duza. Every report, every dramatic review of Duza speaks of a Cleopatra and an actress who played Cleopatra as a woman who is always steadfast and loyal to Antony, but is also very, very political. She is seeking out Antony because, having already been very close to Julius Caesar and been his partner, she has learned a lot about how to keep power. She needs Antony. Antony, who is one of the three who rule the Roman Republic. And he and Octavius Caesar, as Octavius says, are bound to have a rupture. And that rupture is bound to lead to civil war within the Roman Republic. The triumvirate are going to break up. And given what Antony is after and what Octavius is after, He just needs more time, Octavius. He suggests Antony marry Octavia. Antony agrees, clearly, to me, because it's politically convenient to marry Octavia and be with her for a while. And he does so, that's his third wife, since Cleopatra feels they were married. That's his third wife. Fulvia being the first. 
Antony needs Cleopatra because of the grain of Egypt, the gold of Egypt, the gold mines running adjacent to the Nile further south, much, much further south. Politically, they need each other. And the love affair is because Antony needs, politically needs Cleopatra, which is why he's capable of going off and marrying Octavia. If you do need something for political reasons, and your political necessities change, then you are going to change accordingly. Publicly, it certainly. So I came to think, and I never played her fully like this, but I came to think that, oddly enough, it's Cleopatra who is the one who is constant. I also came to think that Antony, along with Leah, is one of the greatest roles that were ever written for any actor. And I've never seen any actor, however wonderful they were, which includes my father who played Antony back in 1953, which was a long time ago. But I saw that production on a number of occasions. He got great notices, great reviews, but I've never seen him or anyone else, however good they were, being able to play Shakespeare's Antony. And that wasn't, could not have been because they were good, not good enough actors. It had to be because of this kind of blindness that descends on all of us if research or events haven't cleared our eyes and shown us that there are other aspects that we haven't been able to take in and include in our analysis. So I'm just going to have a sip of water. I think it's not very helpful for analysis or research, but to me, Antony is a role. I think Philip Seymour Hoffman would be a brilliant Antony from many points of view, basically because he's an extraordinary actor, also because he's played O'Neill. And I was with him in a production of Long Day's Journey into Night. And Antony descends into his Long Day's Journey. The question is, why does Antony descend? He loses his mind, literally loses his mind. He doesn't do anything but drink as he loses his mind. He loses everything. And in my view, it's not what Antony says it is. Foul Egyptian thou hast betrayed me, because she ran with her ships out of the battle. It's because he has, for a long time, had that fear and that jealousy. And I think you can't have jealousy without an accompanying fear of Octavius's youth. He is 
some 20 years older than Octavius. Octavius is the nephew of Julius Caesar. He carries a lot of political support with him and a lot of land with him. Antony, through his liaison with Cleopatra and officially via the triumvirate, has control of Egypt, the Balkans, all the way up Syria, the Balkans. And Octavius has Italy, Gaul, and Hibernia, Spain, <coughs> Iberia, sorry. Um, and this fear, I think, is associated with the soothsayer, and to my mind, the soothsayer is not an Egyptian soothsayer. Cleopatra's girls, as she calls them later, and frequently, especially in her last hours. Cleopatra's girls don't talk to the soothsayer like he's a frequent habit. On the contrary, Rome had much superstition within it, and we can't say a soothsayer is necessarily superstitious. Shamans, we could say, are witch doctors or superstitious soothsayers but they're not. They're much more than that. I think Antony brought the soothsayer with him. Roman as he was. He was Roman through and through. He was born in Rome. He lived in Rome. He fought Caesar in Rome. Julius Caesar. He protected Julius Caesar and fought Julius Caesar's enemies and killed Brutus at the Battle of Philippi. Well, he committed suicide, but he defeated Brutus and Cassius and all their forces. He has been a contestant, as the text shows, against, Julia, against Octavius Caesar in all kinds of gaming, dice throwing, card games, jousting, you name it, every kind of competition. And because Octavius is so much younger, he has a strength, a personal strength of body and a personal strength of a special kind, which I'll come to in a minute, within him, that Antony is losing by virtue of his age. Now, some people may think, well, he's not that old, he's 42. Yes, but Octavius is 22. And if you're a boxer and you're 42, you'll be extremely lucky if you can beat a boxer of 22. If you're a tennis player of 42, you cannot beat a tennis player who is in their 20s or very early 30s. You cannot. Weigh this as any value to analysis or not. This is how I see it. He is afraid, and the text shows he's afraid. He's afraid. He's afraid of time running by and he's getting older. He has to defeat Octavius. And he calls on the soothsayer, and the soothsayer says, don't stay near Octavius, because he'll always beat you. And I'm stressing, I don't think the soothsayer should be rubbished off as somebody no one should have listened to. So, 
Why does he fly? He blames Cleopatra. He has to blame. He's an, what they call an alpha male. He's got to blame Cleopatra, for goodness sake, for the defeat. But vantage was in Antony's hands, as is said in the text. Cleopatra went. Antony did not have to leave. In my view, it was that the fear increased by time, by some more white hairs in his head, by feeling his energies not being quite what they were. He panics, loses his mind, and makes a run for it. And then he loses himself. He goes mad, <coughs> step by step by step by step, drinking all the way. In that sense, he's an O'Neill guy. He's one of the sons of Tyrone, the actor, in Long Day's Journey Into Night. And if that course is taken by any wonderful actor, then Antony becomes the protagonist of the two. And if Cleopatra is the protagonist, and Antony cannot be held to be so by any spectator, however good they are as an actor, then you haven't got the play. Now, I'm at the end of my time. I just want to conclude why Leah and Antony and Cleopatra. The more I look at Leah, even looking back at Leah today, having talked about Leah yesterday, thinking of how I myself am a mix, if I go way, way back, I'm a mix of an obsession with the Pilgrim's Progress, because that was the one book I could read and read and read that helped me cope with the idea that it did seem conceivable from the little I heard from the adults I was around. Conceived conceivable that Britain would be invaded in the Second World War, and as we know, it was more than conceivable. Virginia Woolf was as concerned as anybody, and she knew her husband was Jewish. And she was frightened she would not be able to protect him, if she, especially if she got some more of that, those mini nervous breakdowns that she did have periodically. And she committed suicide, in my view, in order to save Leonard Woolf. Nobody agrees with me on that, but that's my, my firm view. reading one of her letters to Leonard, which is precisely about that. It's not her last. Now, I don't know how to say this well enough. I wish I could. Throughout Elizabeth's reign, especially in the last decades of Elizabeth's reign, the nonconformists and the Puritans were gaining more and more members and more and more adherents both religious terms and on, e on economic grounds. There was Martin Marprelet who was spreading pamphlets everywhere. It's supposed backed by some Puritans in the House of Commons, maybe also in the House of Lords. There was, of course, that double edge where there were the 
extremists on both, in both religions, um, but mostly there were Catholics who were terrified because you couldn't be openly a Catholic. And there were Catholic pamphlets which were actually devoutly wanting to convince people, stay steady, keep your faith. Keep your faith even though now you have to have your little altar hidden inside a cupboard, which is about six doors before you can find that altar because you can only pray at home if you've got that kind of wardrobe which has got sufficient doors and drawers to be able to kneel down and pay respects in Catholic terms. But Tom of Bedlam, poor Tom, if one looks at it, I suggest that one will see that the what are apparently mad phrases have something akin to what John Bunyan writes about in The Pilgrim's Progress. He had various periods when he was convinced that devils were trying to get him to lose his faith, and when he began to despair that he was losing his faith. It's a very extraordinary story. And when these devils are described by John Bunyan, they are remarkably similar, I think, to some of what poor Tom, otherwise Edgar, the legitimate eldest son of the Earl of Gloucester, says. And fundamentally, Edgar is the one hope, and it's still not a decided hope, but it is a glimmering of hope that this young man at the end of King Lear may find a way forward. Shakespeare doesn't say what's going to happen. A lot of dead people, but poor Tom, Edgar may well find some solution because he's the youngest, younger than Albany. And what happened in James's time was again this conflict in which James and his government were afraid of two contending forces, the rich versus the poor, of keeping order against the poor and the destitute, the vast growing numbers, the Poor Law Act and so on, which was kept on. A fear of, which diminished, of the King of Spain, and a fear of nonconformism, opposition, whether in the form of dedicated Puritans or very convinced nonconformists, Quakers and so on. And that, I believe, is the connecting link. <coughs> because, again, Shakespeare was a survivor. He had to present things in a certain way. But the Romans, from the first word in Antony and Cleopatra, are saying that Antony has absolutely lost his wits because he's consorting with a gypsy, with a whore, we can remember the words of Jezebel and Delilah used by nonconformists and Puritans, sometimes by the Presbyterians and 
the Calvinists like John Knox against Mary's, Mary, Queen of Scots, but also used against Elizabeth, and also used against James I. All this was seething. And so the Romans in the beginning of Antony and Cleopatra have not a good word to say about what they call Egypt or Cleopatra. Does that mean we have to go with that story? Given the texts that Cleopatra has, yes, she's cruel, yes, she's tyrannical. She is, all those things. But she's pretty wise. Whatever she is, I know what she isn't. <laughs> and that's not good enough, I know, but that's where I see it. Octavius leads those forces, which are called the forces of Octavius Caesar, and he's called Octavius Caesar, and a wonderful tool is used by Shakespeare because James I saw himself as Octavius Caesar. Just Elizabeth, as Elizabeth was referred to as Empress in so many of the drawings and paintings. So Octavius Caesar, James saw in a very specific way as the victor, as the noble Roman, inheriting the nobleness of Rome, never mind the anything else-ness of Rome. So it's quite safe to have Octavius Caesar winning because James I, as it were, translated the way Soviet writers had to translate everything. Um, who could charge Shakespeare? And yet something happened. That play was not performed. So I see that non-conformism, that puritanism, that fierce belief in leading a modest, very, very modest, religious life by principles, because they didn't believe there were any principles in the kingdom. And I'll end with just, I'm sorry, Laurie, I'm so over time. I do beg your pardon. But Laurie and Sos Eldis kindly found this poem. I'm not going to... This is a poem by Walter Raleigh, Sir Walter Raleigh, written before he thought he was going to die. There have been people who said Walter Raleigh was Catholic, there's people who've said Shakespeare was Catholic, this, you know, all these conjectures have gone and on. Um, I think that Shakespeare was a humanist above all, I think he was also a nonconformist, but he had to keep him survive and keep himself within limits while pouring out his passion into the simple prose of the poor, the directness by which people at the end of their tether can speak. Anyway, this is what Walter Raleigh wrote when he did think he was going to die, and he was under sentence of death, which was then reprieved. He was sent to the tower. 
1603. He was let out, I don't remember, six or seven years later, allowed to go off in search of El Dorado, didn't find it, and returned and was put back in the tower. I think that first time that he was put in the tower and reprieved from death, just the first two verses. I'm not saying that Shakespeare was a pro-Raleigh guy. I don't think he was a pro-somebody guy. I don't think he ever issued forth in that way. Why should he? He was a poet, a writer, a great writer. <coughs> it's called The Lie. Go, soul, the body's guest, upon a thankless errant meaning errand. Fear not to touch the best. The truth shall be thy warrant. Go, since I needs must die, and give the world the lie. Say to the court, it glows and shines like rotten wood. Say to the church, it shows what's good and doth no good. If court and church reply, then give them both the lie. There's a very, very hard, passionate non-conformism. And if he's prepared for whatever it takes. It's this spirit of non-conformism that runs through England, going this way, going that way, like the flag in the stream, and yet founded, whether leaning to Catholic or becoming Catholic, or leaning to the Puritans and becoming Puritans in faith. It's a seeking for justice and how do we live? And that's where we come to the end of what I'm talking about. And that's where we come to human rights in our time. We got our British prisoners back from Guantanamo, thanks to our lawyers in human rights, thanks to American lawyers, German lawyers, thanks to the barristers, thanks to these teams that fought, thanks to their families who knew that they, if they had committed anything wrong, they must be brought back and tried for what they would be charged with. We live in a world, as you know, where the basis for democracy, which is the rule of law, is trembling very muchly because leaders have been ready to either ally themselves with breaching, as they call it, the legal word, that law, breaching the American Constitution, breaching the British Bill of Rights in one way or another, and consigning people to infinite detention as it was intended. And infinite detention is a torture in itself without charge or trial. So that's where I try in my somewhat flailing way to bring together 
the now and the yesterday with in Anthony and Cleopatra and in King Lear. Thank you so much. I do apologize. <laughs>completely wonderful thank you on behalf of everybody and it makes perfect sense and I love that the way in which Vanessa after our break united um, the personal and the political so we start with Anthony as someone who is motivated by a very human emotion fear uh, and then we end with Vanessa taking us back to nonconformism and human rights. What's so interesting about that, of course, is there's a line in the folio text, the only printed text of Antony and Cleopatra, that says Antony has a fear, a noun, and it's got a capital F, and editors oh, always really? amend that because they don't ah. make sense of it. Wow. The, the least they do is turn it into a verb and say he's a fear, but sometimes they, they change the word completely. Um, and so that, that completely relocates Antony, I, I, I think. And, and made wonderful sense and what I wanted to ask you yes. um, given that you've had this wonderful mix of the political and the personal I mean Jonathan Miller in one of his introductions said that the personal is always running through Shakespeare's political plays and he gives us an example Anthony and Cleopatra and says this is a play about armies clashing but it's about people who set armies clashing and you, you mm. cannot separate the two so just given that um, never again will we have someone who's played five Cleopatras and directed the play three times. Could you just tell us something about the most political Cleopatra you've played and one that might have been at the other extreme, an apolitical Cleopatra, or one that seemed to you um, directed in a way that was less relevant? Or is that a contradiction in terms Shakespeare is always going to to be politically in the here and now. Can you locate your Cleopatras for us on political spectrums or personal spectrums? I can have a try. Sure, <laughs> come <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Well, the, the first Cleopatra I played was in 1973, and it was in the tent that the wonderful American actor, Sam Wanamaker, erected on the bank side, on the south bank, near where it was believed that located, that the globe had been and was located as where the rose certainly had been because they found the, the, under, the underpinning of the old mm. rose theatre. And Tony said we would, he would set it more or less in the 1930s. Um, and it was how he saw it in this, it was covered by a tent, but it was in the open air at the same time. Um, and we were rained off <laughs> halfway through the run. And Sam, in the middle of the storm, climbed with a bucket and literally standing on the tent roof, trying to bail the water out over the side of the tent while we were playing saying, the show must go on, the show must go on. And I thought he was a brave, sort of wonderful, Anthony-like man. <laughs> and we owe it to him, of course, this wonderful American actor that we have today, Shakespeare's Globe. Anyway, that's where we played it. And Cleopatra, Tony encouraged me to think, was a sort of...
Pola Negri or um, one of those other film stars in the black and white period of cinema, or Joan Crawford. And I clicked with thinking about Joan Crawford uh, because I had met Joan Crawford for what it's worth, neither here nor there, but especially because I'd worked with Douglas Fairbanks Jr., who'd been Joan Crawford's husband at some time, and uh, in fact during the war, and he'd served in the war, and he was away in uh, Europe, fighting um, for about a year. Hadn't seen Joan for more than a year. And uh, he got back on leave, and he rushes straight to the studios and the set where Joan is filming. And everybody, out of respect for this war hero, or hero man returned from the war, stopped filming and said, Joan, 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 Douglas is here. So filming stopped. And Douglas, as he told me himself, he came forward and comes up to Joan and she flings her arms around him and he puts his arms around her and she looks up at him ecstatically and says, oh, Dougie, isn't it wonderful? I've been given a new contract under MGM. <laughs> so that story helped me understand Tony's idea of playing Anthony and Cleopatra in the 1930s. He wanted this woman particularly. I don't remember how he thought of Anthony. That wasn't my job to mm. understand that so much. <laughs> but um, the designer gave me a lovely 1930s retro silk dress. And I dyed my hair flaming red and uh, lots of makeup and smoked, drank whiskey copiously and when as directed by Tony, I was ready to do anything Tony wanted because he was such an iconoclast and I was such a conservative that I got excited by iconoclasm, I iconoclasm <laughs> and was ready to try anything. And uh, so when Anthony leaves um, Cleopatra for the first time going off, he said, see yourself, you're, you're at a premiere of your own movie mm. and there are photographers everywhere flashing photographs, you were all dressed up. Of course, we only used one costume and the fans are shouting from behind the barricade Cleopatra, 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 can I have your autograph? And the, this way, this way, Cleopatra, this way, this way, look here, Cleopatra, look here. And she loves it, mm -hmm. being the lady that she's supposed to be. Most of us hate it, but <laughs> we have to do it. <laughs> and of course, I was in the middle, he said, play it, it's a scene you're playing. You're playing a scene, yeah. so we had whiskey, yeah. she's drinking, knocking back the whiskey, she's tottering on her feet, 
and she's being brave and glorious. Mm -hmm. And if the wind's blowing her hair, that's fine. And can I interrupt there then, Do. because this, of course, is what Northrop Fry doesn't like about Cleopatra, that she's an actress. Um, <laughs> and what he really yes. takes her uh, to task for is, is Antony's death scene, because he says, let me speak. And she says, no, 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 let me speak. <laughs> and what he says is that she has to upstage everyone in that play, <laughs> even when Antony's dying. You can be so sure we did how that. Does, yeah. OK, right. That, so you've answered my question. I just wondered how an actress <coughs> responds to playing someone who is so histrionic. Well, I found it very difficult because I'm not that kind of actress. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about because this was the point of view so much in Tony, my first husband, Tony Richardson's view of the play. He just wanted a situation in which they could be shown to be both glorious and mean, mm. shabby, cruel, stupid people. Mm -hmm. And that was the medium, how he chose to, <coughs> how he chose to show it. Um, Have you, has yes. your Cleopatra ever been fearful? Because everything you were saying about Antony and that wonderful reading of him as being 20 years older than Octavius, worried that he's losing it, is what you get in the speeches of Cleopatra questioning the messenger about the looks and the age um, of the new bride. So how have you ever had a very vulnerable uh, or fearful Cleopatra to match your vision now of a fearful Antony? Two different kinds of fear, I, I, I think, aren't they? So there's right, the fear yeah. of losing your power, which is one kind of fear, losing your power in every sense. Yeah. Feeling age coming fast. And some people feel that terribly and some don't because they've got surer ground under their feet. They've got principles to live by. They've got goals that don't depend on material circumstances, although we all find it very hard to di live in difficult material circumstances. Um, to be played well, Cleopatra has to be afraid. But I've come to think I hadn't understood well enough by the very end of the production, my production, which I think had some excellent aspects, but, and we had a terrific cast. It wasn't the cast's fault. If you can't um, just throw some lights that can move and stir the actors to find their place within that context and be mm. able to really move and develop of their, with their own contributions, then the contributions, however good, will be floating pieces on the stream. Mm -hmm. You've got to find the stream that carries them all mm. and make it clear and then be accepting of everyone's contribution. One last but she's question. not afraid of death, and she's, she's not afraid of old age. Although she yeah. no, she's afraid of losing Antony's love, because she is, as she says herself, pinched black with Phoebus pinches. We all know what they are. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Wrinkled, deep in time. 
She is wrinkled deep in time. Whether she's played as Trevor Nunn and Janet Sussman saw, in which she is just simply quite beautiful, both in appearance and in her acting. Mm -hmm. But the text says she does not beautiful. Because she's maybe beautiful if you, you know, some people are beautiful and they can be 60 or 70. I've seen such people, men or women. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, women don't feel they're at their most beautiful when they're at their most wrinkled. <laughs> and you quoted that speech from Ina Barbus where he's describing Cleopatra and of course what he says is he describes everything around her in exquisite detail and then for herself it beggared all description. I cannot describe Cleopatra. Now that's a standard poetic trope where you don't get, you know, the beautiful woman. But it's okay in poetry. It's not okay on the stage because then Cleopatra has to come on and be what cannot be described. Mm. So how <laughs> how do you handle that as an actress? Um, I mean, you read reviews that are very scornful that say you know her her variety was not infinite enough. I mean, yes. how do you play that infinite variety? Well, I find reading about Queen Elizabeth very helpful <laughs> because yes. she was yeah. infinitely variable. Yeah. I mean, she had extraordinary skills. And uh, like Cleopatra, she could speak about and write and read in about six languages. Cleopatra was Greek. I mean, Shakespeare had a circle of friends, without mm -hmm. a doubt, who he could turn to for research and um, some very deep research, as a matter mm -hmm. of fact. That doesn't make him not the writer. So she was the first to learn Egyptian, I think, wasn't she? She was the first According to, yeah. to Plutarch. According yes, to Plutarch, that's right. She wasn't a contemporary, but yeah. he does say that. Which, yes. But there's an Elizabeth uh, moment there. Um, what about questions to Vanessa uh, from the floor about Anthony Cleopatra, King Lear, any of the films you've seen this week, anything at all, uh, comments, um, additional points, particularly encouraging her to give us anecdotes from her theatrical career. All are welcome. Yes, go ahead. Shouldn't Let show it. But in your heart of hearts, how bad how bad is Coriolanus's mother? I'm gonna repeat that question just in case the the audio or people at the back didn't get it despite its clarity. So a question about Volumnia in Coriolanus uh, and how bad is Coriolanus's mother? Okay. Well, I think one must never show, unless it's a certain kind of play, which demands demonstrating. An actor or actress must not demonstrate. That's <laughs> got quite a different goal, demonstrating. You can demonstrate if you're a brilliant cook, and the beetroot has to be a beetroot. If you get my <laughs> illusion. But you must be in that person. You must know why, who you are, and be proud of who you are, and believe in what and who you are, and what that who you are 
believes in. I've, I said to Rafe, I wanted, yes, immediately when he asked me to play Volumnia. I said yes, immediately, because I wanted to work with Rafe, because I admire him as an actor, and I wanted to work with him as a director and actor. But I said, I don't feel I can play Volumnia. He said, you can, excuse me, you can, you can. I know you can. Said, I said, oh, well, I hope I can, but I don't think I can. And I had to tell you that I'm convinced, as near as convinced, that I can't as may be. But he insisted I could, and I wasn't going to give up working with a wonderful actor who had a passion for this play. So I had to find a way to know who I was as Volumnia and why Volumnia is proud to be who she is. And I don't, since I have to spill, still speak as Volumnia because I played her, um, I have to speak of the way I found who she was. I had to become, put myself inside a woman who comes from a long line, a generational line, of military fighters. She has never fought herself. She's a woman. She feels she has a duty to train her family, her son or her grandson, to be military people, to fight, to be superb in combat and ready to give their lives for their country. Well, I'm not saying I came to this all in one fell swoop, to quote Shakespeare, I didn't. But I remembered how I felt as a six-year-old during the war. I, I wished I was an adult. I wished I could fight. I wished somehow, if it came to it, I could assist in defeating the Nazis, defeating the Third Reich, defeating Hitler. I wanted that more than anything I could think of, but I was six years old. So I th remembered that, and I remembered the glory of my Uncle Robin, both my mother's, my mother's two brothers, both of them, joined the Royal Navy. My father joined the Royal Navy until he was invalided out on a dislocated shoulder, and I think Noel Coward spoke to somebody and said, listen, you know, he can do more important work here at home, playing for people in midday concerts and plays than going off to fight. And I think that was true. Um, but my mother's two brothers, uh, one of them did not survive the war, and one of them did. They were both in the Royal Navy. Their father, my grandfather, had risen from being a 14-year-old working as a clerk in a bank through, through, through a tortuous road, through being somehow getting a job teaching young midshipmen on the Navy ship, which he'd got no qualifications for whatsoever. And he rose to become headmaster of the Royal Naval College training, giving education to 
those who plan to be professional military people, sailors in this case. And I remember when Robin was shell-shocked and he was sent back to where we were in the, evacuated in the country, and I saw him in his uniform, and he was very young, he was, I don't know, 25 or something like that, with red hair, he sort of looked like an Elizabethan, actually. I didn't know how ill he was, how, what shell-shocked means. His ship had been blown up in the North Sea, and I remember him playing with us. And I thought, you're a wonderful person to be fighting, you know, for all people in Britain with the Allies against Hitler's forces. And actually, he died fighting the Japanese hand-to-hand battle in guerrilla warfare in the jungles of Malaysia somewhere, and then they had to evacuate in a boat, and that was blown up too. And as a stoker in that ship told my grandfather when the war was over, he'd had a telegram, my grandfather, saying, missing in action, which always put fear into everybody. I'm telling this because of alumnia. <laughs> um, and uh, he had, with a dislocated shoulder from some of the guerrilla warfare he'd been in, um, he'd insisted, as he was a, a lowly officer, but was a l an officer, he'd insisted that the stoker must take this bit of wood and cling to it to survive, and the stoker did survive. And Robin had to the goal of swimming 26 miles to land with a dislocated shoulder in the Pacific. Well, of course, he didn't make it. So I remembered that and began to grow from the inside. Sometimes you can come from the outside. Sometimes the best, I think, is when you can come from the inside. And I thought of all the military people I worked with when I was... Um, both in Sarajevo, where I went a lot of times during the war, and to the end and after the war, and in Kosovo. And some of these military people were just terrific. Um, had long talks with a British general who I thought was fantastic, um, the way he was talking. And usually military people are if they're in the officer ranks, not necessarily, but they usually are, come from middle-class families, you know. They've been to school, they've had education and so on, or they've received it later. And with Italians of the same kind, especially a woman who um, ran a sort of girl guide, very seriously, um, and had been married to one of the Italian prime ministers, and I went to her for her help to approach certain people in government to get both visas for refugees coming out. Uh, this case was Kosovo by that time. And um, we were trying to get people out as well as trying to give help to people in. And 
at the end of the war in Kosovo, when the Serbian forces were forced to retreat, thank God they were. Many people I knew were murdered there. And I went back after they had been murdered. I met their families and so on. Mostly the ones who'd been murdered were human rights lawyers who'd been accused of helping terrorists. That had been the way it was. Anyway, these military people that I met, mm. one of whom was a woman, although she wasn't and hadn't and had never intended to fight personally, they gave me the inside and an outside in which I could conceive of being something I've never been and never wanted to be, which is the patriarch of a military family and a man who's ready to give his life for his country. And she conceives that he's the soul of his country. And when he betrays his country, as he does, nothing but shame and horror awaits him. She knows it. And nothing but shame and horror awaits the people in Rome. And so she tries to get a peace. And she's the only person who can try to get a peace, who's been the person who's all spent her life saying, go out to war. That's why Shakespeare is so wonderful. It's so much more like real life. That's a wonderful answer to a very good question. Thank you a so much. A very good question, yes. yes. Other hands up? Other queries? Yes. Okay, great question. Lovely. After drama school, what were Vanessa's first productions and how did they influence her? Thank you. Well, the first job I got, I was so damn thrilled. They offered £7 a week and it was to play 10 weeks of a new play each week up on the coast of East Anglia at Frinton-on-Sea. And I'd been asked because I'd shown myself in the end of graduation display of scenes and so on to be rather good at playing old ladies. <laughs> so I had about eight roles as an old lady. I was only allowed to use a grey wig for one of them. I had to work with that dear old Johnson's baby powder a lot. And, um, but I had, and I had one young role, really young role, in a play in which I played a debutante. Not the leading debutante, another debutante. And that was terrific, both for the camaraderie of the company, but also as learning how to exist on seven pounds a week. Because four of them went to paying bed and breakfast, and, and um, three of them were food, and providing your own costumes. But I was very proud of having that job, thrilled to pieces. And um, we were all on the same kind of deal. And how did they influence you? Well, it influenced me mostly on being able to turn my hand to pretty well anything, <laughs> which is useful as an actress. And 
Ellen Terry, the great actress who was the great aunt of John Gielgud, had always said, and I, of course I'd read her autobiography when I was very young, um, that she, her ambition was to be a useful actress. And so to be a useful actress was my big ambition. And the other big ambition was to be able to act in classical drama, meaning go to Stratford-on-Avon at that time. <laughs> so that was a big influence. And the other major influence, I mean, you must know this, some of you yourselves, is how do you live on three pounds a week? Because you've got your breakfast sorted out and where you'll go home to bed. But how do you feed on three pounds a week? It's very hard. So obviously the odd sandwich, which costs less than they do now, um, was what kept us going basically. And on Sundays we all pooled so that we could get minced meat and spaghetti and apples, and I would make uh, spaghetti bolognese for the company of about 15 or 16, including stage management and the carpenter. And, um, and there'd be an apple per person for health. <laughs> and that would be the basic food of the week. So that's my answer. <laughs> Goodness, and um, key lines from King Lear come into mind about you know, reduction of retainers and reason not the need and super flux and so on. Uh, yes. So must have been a constant companion. <coughs> I think we've got time for one very brief question. Yes. yes uh, first of all, thank you for casting new light on two of my favourite plays. Uh, my question relates to something that Jonathan Bate wrote in The Genius of Shakespeare, which was that no actor in his knowledge had ever thought that Shakespeare might have been written by anyone other than the man from Stratford and Avon. And shortly afterwards, Mark Rylance's work came out with a following. Mm. And I wondered whether you had at any stage doubted the veracity of Shakespeare being the man from Stratford on Avon writing the plays. A wonderfully provocative question on which yes, to end. To Has Vanessa ever doubted that the words she was speaking were written by William Shakespeare from Stratford on Avon? That's, gosh, well, you need another ten minutes. <laughs> Is there any more water? I'd yes, love a sip. Yes, we've got um, some here. I wouldn't say the word doubt because um, Shakespeare is not a religious question, and the word doubt to me is either a legal question or, a, or a, a question of faith and so on. Um, I didn't for years and years and years, why, why should I? You know, I didn't bother my head that for years that uh, Shakespeare had been buried in Stratford-on-Avon, why not? He was buried there, that's okay. Um, I thought The Merchant of Venice, as I said, very young, was a wonderful read. And I had no idea who Shakespeare was, but that's the name printed. And of course, discovered over the years, nobody discussed it whatsoever in any of the years that I was at Stratford-on-Avon. Um, I noticed that remarks about Shakespeare were extremely limited. 
if it was just talking about his life, infinitely fascinating, infinite to explore, if his plays were being discussed. So, of course, naturally the main issue is the plays, not the identity of who wrote them. For, for anyone with real research capacity within them and around them, um, there's been so much written, and most of us have read a lot about what has been written, but we actors and actresses have always read it from the point of view of understanding more deeply about Shakespeare's plays. And at this point in time, I think that the one thing lacking, basically, has been to take an all-embracing approach to the plays, rather than an English literature, which is valid, totally, of course, approach to the plays. You need to find the times that stirred the Globe and Shakespeare and the actors, because they were living in such difficult times. And I've always been an, of the view, and still haven't left that view, and I don't imagine I will till I drop, that it's what's going on that is the strongest influence in life to anybody, net the now, and that what's held in the, in the either in the genes or in uh, the past history, is vital for being able to know, well, where of the answer to that question, where have I come from, where am I, where am I going? The great question that Gauguin put up on that painting. And I've answered by that, but where, I, where am I, where have I come from, where am I going, whether to myself, or to anybody else by saying, well, I feel I can only analyse that from the point of view of human rights, which means you need to study history straight off. And I don't think today it's possible to take a, a, make an analysis or a view of what can be done without doing a lot of study or seeking research mm. from those who are specialists and especially in the field of human rights, because if you are not content with protesting, but want to help, well, my answer has been, we can help in our world of the theatre and film and poetry, music. That's where we can help. That's where we can try to keep people from becoming forever divided or endlessly divided. That's why I support the Barenboim Said Foundation, which funds the West Eastern Divan Orchestra, because they don't even need words. They need to work together. And that was the whole point, working together on music, in the course of which, if you read the discussions between Barenboim and Edward Said, you find that, of course, political questions do come up about Israel and Palestine and being an Arab and being Jewish. But they're not why everyone's got together. They didn't get together to make peace. They got together to make music. Mm -hmm. And that's what we can do in our field of drama.
That's a wonderful way for us to end. I've got my eye on the clock Thank here. You. And I feel like we're an audience of Prospero's having to release our magical aerial <laughs> to liberty after three hours of, of hard work. Uh, Vanessa said in response to the first question about Volumnia that an actress shouldn't demonstrate in the sense of put your cards on the table. But this actress has demonstrated all sorts of wonderful things to us this afternoon and yesterday and your image of Shakespeare oh, the so Reconciler sorry. Shakespeare's giving us a sign there of approval I think <laughs> Shakespeare the Reconciler Vanessa has reconciled so many things for us this afternoon in so many areas and we are very grateful to you thank you very much oh, thank you very very much I expect you all know about the symposium somewhere tonight. It's on the programme, but I think oh, we could Sorry. remind people about it because it's back in the examination schools. Is that right? Yes, at 8pm. It's 8, is it? Is it? Uh, getting a nod from Sally Shuttleworth. Yes. And oh, that great. is a discussion with Michael Billington. And Rob Ray Fines. Fines. Vanessa and other luminaries. Don't miss it. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you.